the old NWA Worldwide Wrestling theme. As we celebrate the life of Jim Crockett Jr., I'm Jonathan Hood. For Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday, thanks so much, as always, for downloading the podcast. If you have not heard part one of our review of the career and life of Jim Crockett, stop this right now, pause this, and go back to part one. As you will hear from Tony Schiavone, you'll hear from... So many others, including Ric Flair, as well as Larry Zabisco, J.J. Dillon, and others, talking about the life and times of one of the greatest promoters in the history of professional wrestling, and that is Jim uh, Crockett Jr. And the reason why that we are having a part two is because there's so much more as far as opinion of how people looked at the National Wrestling Alliance. At this point in time in 2021, Tony Khan has the second best wrestling company in North America. Of course, the WWE with Vince McMahon, Paul Levesque, and others have made the WWE global. It was once a Northeast Territory under Vince McMahon in the early 80s. Now it has morphed into a phenomenon globally across the world. And so Tony Khan in Jacksonville, Florida, is trying to be able to do something with all elite wrestling. He's got a good start because he's got TV, not just TV. He's got Turner Television. And so they're so very young. But I just want to compare and contrast for a moment. Vince McMahon Jr. and Jim Crockett Jr. So when Vince McMahon took over for his dad, just like Jim Crockett Jr. took over for his dad, uh, Jim Crockett Sr., Vince McMahon wanted to take over the entire landscape of pro wrestling. Vince McMahon Sr. was a board member of the NWA. And so it was interesting the differences between Junior and Sr. Sr. got along with all the other territories across pro wrestling. And Vince McMahon wanted to be able to take every territory from Minneapolis to uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, to Portland, to Florida. He wanted to get all the best talent and bring him to the WWE to make it the biggest and the brightest. And he did that. He did that for sure. The other side is Jim Crockett Jr., who was part of the National Wrestling Alliance, became the president of the NWA, but also was someone that was riding the coattails of Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and having a lot of success in the South, in Atlanta, Georgia, in the Carolinas, primarily in the South and Florida. And the NWA decided to go from territory to a national brand. This is why the NWA had shows in Chicago. It had shows in Los Angeles and San Francisco. It had shows in Portland. It had shows in Philadelphia and in New York and New Jersey, Boston, in Detroit, 
all across the country in the late 80s, the NWA started to expand. And that ultimately was the downfall for the NWA. It is interesting to note that of all the promoters I know for pro wrestling, there's only one. That is the promoter, the owner, and the booker. And that's Vince McMahon. Over the years, you've had situations like Eric Bischoff is a great example. Eric Bischoff takes over under the Turner brand and is the head of World Championship Wrestling. Even though he was the head of World Championship Wrestling, Eric Bischoff didn't book wrestling shows. He looked. He presided over the company, but it was always Kevin Sullivan. It was Ric Flair. It was Dusty Rhodes. It was others that were booking for him. Kevin Nash. Others were booking for him. And, of course, if you listen to Eric Bischoff's podcast, 83 Weeks of Eric Bischoff, everyone was at fault except him because, well, he wasn't a booker. He'll be the first to tell you. So the downfall of a WCW is off of Eric Bischoff's hands. He never blames himself. He always points to Terry Taylor, Mike Graham, Greg Gagne. There's all, it just goes on and on and on. I think it's hilarious because if you're the head of the company and then you say, well, this booking has nothing to do with me, then why did you allow it? Always ask that question. But what happened in WCW with Eric Bischoff is not new. In many territories across the country, we come to find out in the past that there would be promoters that would allow current active wrestlers to be able to have the pencil and book matches and book cards and book angles. Well, for Jim Crockett, Jim Crockett was a booker for about six weeks of his entire tenure with the National Wrestling Alliance. And he was, quote-unquote, a maintenance booker. Maintenance booker. And that is someone that says, okay, I'm just going to preside over this. I'm just going to keep it going, but I'm not going to make a lot of moves here. I'm just going to allow whatever the booking was before, I'll just allow it to happen. But Jim Crockett, just like so many others around the years as promoters, allowed Wahoo McDaniel or Dory Funk Jr. or Dusty Rhodes to do the booking. And so here is my thing about fast forward in 2021. Whatever you think of Tony Khan running All Elite Wrestling, Tony Khan made it very clear that he's the one with the pencil. He is the owner of the company. He is the president of the company. And he's booking the company for better or for worse. So many examples, though, as I just mentioned, there are other promoters who are like, okay, you know what? You run the territory. You book it. You know, I, I run the territory, but I need a wrestler, an active wrestler to book it. That just seems so bizarre to me. Think about if this was modern sports, right? So if you are, say, for instance, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and Tom Brady, of course, he's that dude, right? I mean, he's the greatest quarterback that we've ever seen. Look at all the hardware. But say Bruce Arians says, you know what? I, I'm presiding over the team, but Tom, you take care of the offense and defense. You make sure that you generally manage the team by bringing the t all the talent in. You call the plays, and we'll just go from there. And I'll just be up, up here just presiding over the team. That would be kind of strange, right? You still need people to help run the organization, someone that's a coach or general manager. A player can't do everything. They can perform, but they can't do everything. But in wrestling, especially in wrestling's past, it was always odd that someone like a Paul Bosch in Houston or Don Owen in Portland or Eddie Graham in Florida, it, it, Florida there would always be 
people owning the companies, but saying, okay, you're an active wrestler, you do the booking. But that's how it was. And Dusty Rhodes, Dusty Rhodes was someone that went over and over and over again, continued to have the same finish, the Dusty finish, where Dusty Rhodes would take on Ric Flair. And then referee number one gets bumped out of the ring. And then here comes referee two down the aisle. And Dusty Rhodes pins Ric Flair. And there's a world championship switch. Dusty's the champion, right? Wrong. Because ref one saw some chicanery. And so they give the title to Ric Flair. Imagine that finish over and over and over again. The Dusty finish. Dusty Rhodes also was someone that felt that it was best for him to put himself in the card with the Rock and Roll Express or put himself in the card with the Road Warriors. Now, not saying that Dusty didn't make a lot of those wrestlers during that day of Jim Crockett millions of dollars, thousands of dollars. There's no doubt about that. But I will always question a lot of the booking and a lot of the things that Dusty tried to do. I'll give an example. Rock and Roll Express were always on B-Towns, right? There were eight. There were two different shows, an A-Town and a B-Town. The A-Town would have Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes on top. The B-Town would have the Rock and Roll Express against Midnight Express on top. So they can run two nights, two towns a night. And so Dusty Rhodes would always wonder, like, hey, you know what? I'm looking at our match with Ric Flair, and it's not as full here in this particular town. But to sell out with the Rock and Roll Express on this quote-unquote B-Town, and Dusty would say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be part of a six-man tag team with the Rock and Roll Express and get the rub from Rock and Roll. So I'll be on the B-Shows now. Or the Road Warriors. Over, right? They don't need anybody. But then there would be Dusty saying, you know what? I'm going to be part of this team. Now I'm going to be part of the Legion of Doom. I always thought that was odd as a fan. And so Dusty Rhodes wanted to make sure that, and this is way before or along the same lines of what Vince Junior was doing with the WWE, he thought that the NWA should be bigger. So he took some of those shows to um, bigger stadiums, not just smoke-filled arenas, but during the summer at uh, the big football stadium in Charlotte, there were shows there. He took it to the Vet in Philadelphia. He took it to shows in New York. He was able to try to make the NWA bigger by being in bigger venues, took it at Pittsburgh. I remember the NWA being in Pittsburgh at the, I believe it was the Pirate Stadium, and, and it was Magnum TA and Ric Flair wrestling in the rain or something like that. It was just so crazy, right? But Dusty had these visions of saying, we're bigger than just wrestling. We're going to be in major, in major motion pictures, and we're going to be on sitcoms and all this kind of stuff, right? He had these big visions, and he spent a lot of money spent a lot of money on country music acts for the NWA, which I'm not in the country, and I just thought it was kind of strange that Dusty Rhodes would say, here's David Allen Coe, or here's this particular uh, country music act, and they'd be part of the wrestling. Well, if I come to a wrestling show, I want to see the wrestling. But just like Vince has done in the WWE by al allowing the stars of Hollywood to come into his realm and wrestling, Dusty tried to do the same thing. But the only problem is, is that the WWE had a certain budget. The NWA did not have the WWE's budget. And so the NWA ended up being broke. Now, I blame Dusty for this, but I blame Jim Crockett for this as well. Jim Crockett outspent what he was actually making 
from town to town in the NWA. They, they were making a lot of money, but they spent a lot of money too. <laughs> so a couple of lessons with this. Don't allow the boys to have the pencil if you can help it. Don't run. A, don't have a wrestling company if you can't figure out what the booking is and how to run your organization. That's number one. And number two is don't spend a whole bunch of money that you don't have. And pretty much Jim Crocker Promotions got crippled financially. And that's where Ted Turner picked up the ball and he became the owner of the NWA slash World Championship Wrestling. So... On this part two of Jim Crockett Promotions and talking about the life and time of Jim Crockett, we will hear from Jim himself, Jim Crockett Jr. It was just great timing by Conrad Thompson. Conrad Thompson has multiple podcasts he has on his network for ad-free shows. And I bought this interview so we can be able to hear from Jim Crockett himself. This is Really, the ultimate interview, there's apparently a part two happening, but there's a th there's three hours of Jim Crockett talking about his career. Of course, we're not going to play all three hours here, but you will hear some highlights from that conversation that Conrad Thompson had with Jim Crockett Jr. You'll hear from Dave Meltzer from the Wrestling Observer, a wrestling historian about JCP, Jim Crockett Promotions. You'll hear from Jim Ross as well. We'll try to fit in Jim Cornette and others. But this is a celebration of the life of a great promoter. In the modern day, we're talking about Vince McMahon, and we're talking about Triple H, and we're talking about Tony Khan. But there was nothing like the 80s, as Vince McMahon was rocking wrestling against the southern wrestling of Jim Crocker Promotions. And it resonated across the country. It wasn't little, big against small during that time. They were they were head-to-head -head trying to get the most uh, out of the wrestling fan during that time. Let's hear now from Jim Crockett Jr. with Conrad Thompson. Well, the first thing that you'll hear is Jim Crockett Jr. sitting now with Conrad Thompson talking about his dad, Jim Crockett Sr., as a promoter in the wrestling business. Before wrestling, they were into other things that they used to promote as well. Well, uh, my dad, born up uh, outside of Bristol, Tennessee, Virginia, and he started putting out window cards for... I believe it was a Saperstein gentleman out of Washington, D.C. And he showed up for work every day and pretty soon, well, will you do this? Will you do that? And so back in the 40s, to promote wrestling or boxing, you had to be a the promoter and be a resident of the state. So they needed a, a resident in North Carolina and Florida. My dad said, Florida. Uh, and he stopped in Charlotte and stayed. And uh, Eddie Graham ended up doing the wrestling down in uh, Florida. Uh, so that's how he ended up in Charlotte. We promoted the Harlem Globetrotters in about 40 cities in the South. The old Dick Clark Caravan of Stars uh, we did in numerous, numerous cities through the South. Uh, did summer theater on hockey teams. Did a lot of things, some good, some bad, but we did a, did a little bit of everything. Ultimately, how and why did wrestling become sort of the main focus of the business? Um, I think because it's what we like doing best. Um, and it really, I mean, I went from 
uh, putting out window cards uh, to pretty soon my dad would have me driving to work and it was all kayfabe back till I was about 21, 22 years old. And then I found out there was no Santa Claus. It broke my heart. <laughs> uh, I believe it was George Becker and uh, Bronco Lubitsch standing in the hallway of the, the old office on Moorhead talking about a finish. I had no clue what they were talking about. They, uh, they're going over some high spots and we're blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, wait a minute. This is how it's going to happen. I'm, it really, it broke my heart because I had spent my entire life defending wrestling. Yes, it is real. Yes, they don't like each other. And um, then uh, my dad started having me driving to High Point TV, which was, Greensboro was the big town, but High Point TV was the sort of the bastard child. Mm. A little two camera shoot, a little box up on the second floor of the Sheridan Hotel. And um, so after a couple of years of taking him to there, pretty soon he let me start sitting in on working out the finishes for the TV show. Not matches for the building, but just TV. And I don't know whether he got tired or what, but one day he said, you go, I'm not going. So Wally Dusick and I go up to High Point TV. And uh, that's really where I started the brand that people know as Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, just a year after your dad passes away, a guy moves down here from Minnesota named Rick Flair. Tell yep. us about the first time you met Rick. Rick, uh, he came in wrong. We had our office on Browerbend at that time. Rick comes in. He's got blonde hair. I mean, he's probably 50 pounds heavier than he is now. Um, he was a, you know, the old Minnesota crew, the old uh, weightlifters. Right. And that's what he looked like. He walks in and... But he, he was Ric Flair, even though it was Ric Flair. I mean, he just had an aura about him. And comes in, goes into George Scott's office, and George, uh, chat, we chat for a little bit, said, we're going to make him the nature boy. Now, the nature boy to me was Buddy Rogers. Right. And I'm going, there's only one Buddy Rogers. That's going to be, this is going to be hard to do. Um, you know, and there was a discussion, do you think you can do it? And of course that was like a bull with a red flag. I mean, Rick just took to it. Yes, you know, you're going to have to dress and this and that and the other. And it, you didn't have to tell him twice. Hey, baby, you have just begun to find out what it's all about to take with the new Mid-Atlantic State Team Champions. Woo! Monday night at the Greenville Memorial Auditorium. He, he was the personification of the Nature Boy almost instantly. I felt sorry for his wife, but... <laughs> I mean, he got... I mean, he started walking, talking. He was the Nature Boy. Around that same time, not too long after, another one of uh, Vern Gagne's trainees comes to town 
Ricky Steamboat. Tell us about Steamboat. Well, Steamboat didn't. He we got him from Atlanta. He was down there as Richard Blood. Right. And uh, there was a, a an old timer, another Steamboat, and he he just looked like him, and, and you know we had good luck with. The other one, and so well, can we had him, and he called him, you know, Ricky Steamboat. And Barnett said, "Sure," and he wasn't doing anything with him. Right. Sure. And uh, I mean, Ricky has turned out to be—he's uh, been a big help to my sister in all that she's done, and I mean, trying to raise money for charities. And, I mean, he's been a prince of a guy. Excuse me, but. You know, the, the, the little studio was just that and did not translate into somebody sitting at home saying, this is a big deal. I should go take part in this. And, you know, we just weren't getting any crowd enthusiasm. So we go to Greenville, Spartanburg, wherever, Shelby, and... Sure, it's only 200 people, which put them on one side of the building. They're loud, they're noisy. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's some energy there. But that was the, the reason for it was the, the product itself needed to develop from a TV standpoint. Your, uh, your office is on Briar Bend. How long had you been set up there? You know, I don't remember. Not we we bought Briar Bend for the purpose of doing that, right? And then we got into it. And the ceilings are too low, and we, and then but anyway, um, it worked. And you turned like the back of that office, which was almost like a garage space, into your garage. T- into your TV, right? Yeah. I mean, that's where all these localized promos would, would yep. happen. Yep. Every every. What do we should do it on Tuesdays or Wednesdays? Wednesdays. I think Wednesdays did the interviews, inserted them into the, the tapes, and then shipped them to the stations. Um, and then they had them in time to air for Saturday. That's that's an innovation of yours, the localized promo, right? Right there. Yeah. I don't think I don't think everybody listening to this or, or watching that really knew that. Let's talk about the National Wrestling Alliance. You know, uh, these days, uh, I guess even uh, in the 90s, WWF became the brand, and I think yep. a lot of folks just assume it's always been that way, but for years and years, it was the NWA, and I'm curious, when you are now running things and you're growing your promotion, what did you think of the politics within the NWA? You told how your dad felt about them. Was it easier for you to navigate, maybe, than your dad, or not so much? Well, I, I think it was easier because I was not, not as friendly with them as my dad. They had most of these guys were my dad's age. They had a lot of in common. And so for him to, I want to take this talent from you or I want to, you know, it wasn't in his nature to do that. But uh, to uh, hoodwink, not hoodwink, he ended up taking over running Savannah from Jim Barnett as part of our growth. Didn't bother me. It probably would have bothered my father. 
you know. So you use the word hoodwink and then you retract it. Well, you know, that's sort of the way the wrestling goes. You need to lose this match. Well, you don't ever say it that way. Right. You know, this is what we're trying to do. This is how you're going to benefit. And, you know, that's the way it was. Right. Even with territories. Even with Even cities. with territories. Let's talk about August of 1980. That's when you're elected president of the NWA. Is this something you campaigned for, or was it almost a situation where your business had grown so much that you were just the only choice? I think I was viewed as the only choice, and I think that you know something that they thought I wanted, and it, it was nice, but you know I wanted to, I wanted everybody to work together. I, I viewed Vince as being the giant. Either we work together or I work separately, but the giant was going to come. Right. Sooner or later, he was coming. Now, when you're saying Vince in 80, do you mean Junior? You knew that Junior had aspirations to I, do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, who would the other major powers have been of the NWA at the time. Eddie Graham, Fritz, Don Owens. Okay. Fritz and then Sam Muchnick, because of the, his seniority. I mean, just everybody respected him. They didn't want to upset him. Just, you know, even though he really wasn't running things in St. Louis, but I mean, it was still, he was still Sam Muchnick. Sam Munchnick being the promoter from the St. Louis Territory. It's a fascinating interview, uh, and I'll just play a few other things because we got to move on to other people talking about the late uh, Jim Crockett Jr., but it's funny how he says even in 1980 he knew that Vince McMahon, the giant, as he called him, was coming. What does that say for you as you run your own territory and you are thriving in some ways maybe not thriving as much as Vince McMahon but at least in some areas especially Charlotte Greensboro in certain areas in in Ohio you're thriving and somehow some way you still knew that Vince McMahon was coming the giant as he said was coming it's interesting perspective calling Vince a giant even before he's actually running the territory back in 1980 some thoughts from Jim Crockett Jr. on a number of things here, including his thoughts on Dusty Rhodes and Dusty versus Ric Flair. First, he talks about the Great American Bashes, which was the summer event for the NWA. They would have bash tours. I remember going to one in the late 80s. Uh, the Great American Bash was big. It was something that Dusty Rhodes came up with from a name standpoint, and they would tour. Just like um, just like a band would tour or an act would tour, they would have the Great American Bash. Some thoughts from Jim Crockett Jr. on that. Uh, now that you have two hours of programming on TBS, it's time for another one of Dusty's big ideas, the Great American Bash. Um, the first one, of course, happens in 85. It's the idea of, I guess, combining music and doing a show in a stadium. Uh, he brings David Allen Coe in to Charlotte. He's got the world title there. They're going to do it on closed circuit. It feels special. There's 27,000 fans in attendance. Um, Dusty's in the spotlight again with a, a famous match with Tully inside a steel cage with baby doll services at stake. In hindsight, it's an even 
bigger moment than it seems, I guess, because if this first bash would have failed, the bash tours that followed wouldn't have existed, which in hindsight may have been a good thing. Um, what, what can you tell us about Dusty's vision for the first Great American Bash? I never liked the name. Really? Yeah. It just, the, the, and I was in favor of the entertainment uh, part of it. David Allen Coe, he's the first act. Did you have a relationship or did Dusty have a relationship? Yeah, with that, that was Dusty's pick. I didn't know him from out of the house cat. <laughs> it's a nice idea on paper. And hind, with the benefit of hindsight, was it prudent business to carve off so much revenue to the music? No. The, the, the wrestling fan was coming for wrestling. Right. I mean, unless we'd gone with the Rolling Stones. <laughs> you know, the wrestling needed to be and was the star. And so the, the, the sort of has-been stars that we used really didn't bring anything to the table you know that's in hindsight what can you tell us about that first bash i uh, you know i just remember it was hot and uh dress rooms down at the park center and it's hard to be in the dress room and watch because there's a big fence back there i don't remember that much about other than just being hot and tired same month, September of 85, there's a cage match in the Omni that's just magic. Dusty Rhodes comes out to save Ric Flair from the Russians, even after Flair warned him not to do so in a promo. And when he does, the Andersons lock the cage door and they break Dusty's leg for his troubles. The fans are nearly rioting. Were you there that night? What must it have been like inside the arena? I had to be there, but I don't remember it. Did you know you had something special that night? Could you well, feel it? Yeah, well, from the crowd reaction, you don't have to be actually in the arena. You just need to be where you can feel that that aura. I mean, you you know that worked or it didn't work. Yeah. Right down. There's no no guessing. The promos in this era from Rick and Dusty were just out of this world. Uh, Rick's. Okay. Who can outdo who? That's exactly what it was, yeah. And that wasn't just on TV, right? They oh, were... no. Uh, Dusty went out and bought a Mercedes. Rick went out and bought a Mercedes. Uh, I can remember the conversation. Rick said, well, I'm going to get the windows tinted. Dusty says, no, you want everybody to see you've got one. <laughs> but, I mean, that's what it was. I mean, they did this with cars and fur coats and Rolexes and women and everything. Right? I mean, it, it was a, a fight outside the ring. I can outdo you in anything. It didn't matter what. And a lot of that is probably rooted in the idea that once upon a time, uh, Rick wanted to be rambling Ricky Rhodes. Uh, he, he carried Dusty's bags. He wanted to be Dusty and, now he finds himself being the top guy. He's the NWA world champ, but Dusty is the booker. So that rivalry is born, right? Yeah. He ever really respected Rick or because he sort of idolized him coming up, that was a challenge for him. 
I think it was a challenge for him. Um, but I think he learned to respect him because, I mean, Rick could do things that Dusty couldn't. Right. And never could. I don't think he'd ever admit it. Right. You're in the middle of that whole Dusty Rick thing. And you've got to sort of walk a tightrope because egos are a big deal in any entertainment. But now you've got one that you can't live without in Dusty because he's the creator. But another you can't live without because he's the performer. And you're sort of caught in the middle. How, how do you walk that tightrope? Carefully. Um, make sure that somebody's feelings weren't hurt. I mean, if you sent a finish for Rick in Richmond and Dusty's in Savannah, he may not like it. I mean, he just, I mean, it was a constant, constant battle of making sure the two egos didn't clash. Because left alone, they would have destroyed each other. So just a glimpse of Jim Crockett Jr., his last interview before he passed away with Conrad Thompson. What a great find. And what a great booking for Conrad to get Jim Crockett before he passed away. All right, some thoughts now from Dave Meltzer, wrestling historian from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. His thoughts about the um, building blocks for the NWA and Jim Crockett promotions. Hire George Scott and... Uh, they they made a lot of decisions. They were going to build everything around big shows at the Greensboro Coliseum. The, they were going to really, um, you know, got they brought in big stars and they created big stars. They brought in Johnny Valentine and uh, the Super Destroyer, which was was Don Jardine, Wahoo McDaniel, and through that Mulligan, and then through that Paul, you know, Paul Jones and a lot of guys like that, and then created Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat who were, you know, not big stars until they got there and became huge stars. And Jay Youngblood and other, you know, other people like that, um, you know, they, they gave a big, Paul Orndorff became a big star there. Jimmy Snook and Roddy Piper, who were big stars in Oregon, um, came in and they became big stars. Rocky Johnson, um, Greg, Greg Valentine, you know, was, was not a huge star, but became a big star there as well. And, um, so that, those were the, of course, the Gene and Ole Anderson, those are the big building blocks and they were a real hot promotion. They created the things, they didn't create Thanksgiving tradition because it actually went back to 61, but, um, made it bigger for sure. Um, there was periods in Greensboro where they would be running every other week and they'd be doing about 8,000 fans every every other week. And that's the city the size of Greensboro. It's not, that's not New York. That's not San Francisco. It's not Houston, Texas. It's a much smaller market. And they had, you know, really, from a talent standpoint, in that era, you know, the it was uh, St. Louis and Atlanta and Greensboro would have been the cities where you had the most wrestling talent um, most of the time on your shows, Toronto and New York also were, were up there, but, but it was really St. Louis, Greensboro and, and Atlanta. Um, and in time they outdistanced Atlanta by the end of the seventies, I think. And then, um, early eighties was, was, was really, really strong. And then, you know, Vince took over and became number one and, and they fought Vince and there were all kinds of issues there. 
and you know you you know the, the the difference between running a big company in Charlotte and New York they were they did not can you know Vince hired all kinds of people who were um, experts in all types of different things and they were they were outmanned in a lot of ways they presented a better wrestling product but um, you know they had a lot of disadvantages in fighting Vince and I think that they fell victim to the same thing that many 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 people have fallen victim which is the idea that we'll present better cards and we'll present better matches and better wrestling and therefore in the long run people will recognize that and we will win and it never works that way I mean you can present better wrestling and win but that's not that that historically has never been what uh it's decided on so to speak i mean today that could change but but um in that era it was not about that you know and, and especially in 84 and 85 when it was um you know so much was exposure and presentation and also you know you can never you can never underestimate the value of or you, you can never overestimate the value actually of hulk hogan um it was you know, he was the he was the difference maker. If Hulk Hogan was with Crockett, um, boy, that would have been interesting. Um, but but he wasn't, and um, they, you know, in in trying to compete with Vince in the late eighties, that's when they really had problems. Um, but there was an inevitability. I mean, you know, people will say that like uh, that he should have stayed in uh, the Carolinas and and just you know run that territory but the reality is is he going to he'd have gone out of business because he there's not enough money that could be generated in the carolinas to pay the top guy so he would lose everyone and he would end up being just like bill watts and Vern Gagne and everyone else he would just go down the tubes um that way the other way he went down the tubes also um but you know, the, the problem was is to keep the Road Warriors and Dusty and Ric Flair and uh, Lex Luger and some of these guys, Midnight Express, um, you know, the, 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 the nucleus of the talent that he had in, in 87 and 88, he had to pay them uh, comparable money to what they'd be making in WWF. And he thought that to do that, you know, he'd, he'd make it in his pay-per-view money and Vince sabotaged his pay-per-view business. And all of a sudden, um, you know, I mean, one of the big things about the, the demise of Crockett Promotions in 88 was the accountant, um, you know, being so overworked and overloaded and over his head. And then one day he comes to them and goes, you know, like, we're, we're like, we're deep in debt. And these guys didn't even know it. And I was sitting there watching this thing knowing what the grosses were and knowing how much that airplane cost and knowing how much those those offices cost and it was real easy you know and, and watching the gates drop and it was real easy to me to see especially after vince sabotaged the starcade in 87 that they were going to be that they're losing lots of money you know and when and, and knowing all the contracts that were coming due and somehow they're running around on their airplanes playing rock star and they had no idea until the accountant told them. And it's like, if it cost you $30,000 to, you know, fly on this jet and you're not even grossing $30,000 on your house shows, let alone paying your TV bills, something's going to got to give. And, and it, it happened and, um, you know, they were forced to sell. And, uh, you know, at 43, he went from at the age of 43 of being the number two guy in the wrestling business to 
out of the wrestling business when they sold he thought he was going to be running TBS you know the um, world championship wrestling and when he, and once once he sold it was you know Bill Shaw Bob Du Jim Hurd those people were put in charge and Jim was given it was given a consultant job and, and uh, they never asked him for any feedback and he was gone and he was living in Dallas and he opened up a ice cream place and then he got into real estate and he did very well in real estate and nobody knew that he was a wrestling promoter he did he did promote um he twice twice tried to start uh promoting wrestling once with paul Heyman, and they taped a, a tv show and never went any further and then he, he started a promotion and at the dallas sportatorium when a couple of other i think made this might have been after global failed and you know dallas sportatorium had been failed you know one by one person after another and and failed again there. And um, when he was working in real estate, he, no, you know, nobody knew about wrestling and if people would bring it up. He would pretty much was like divorced from this thing, never followed it until recent years. And um, people brought him back. Conrad Thompson did that interview with him. And there were other people, he was doing other projects in wrestling or, or had planned to until he got sick. And so, um, so he was, you know, ready to talk about, I guess, that era. And, um, that was, that was the basic situation, but he was, uh, you know, I mean, he promoted, uh, he, they did a, they did a great job in that territory of making, you know, Richmond and Roanoke and all those cities. I mean, you know, they were, you know, they were drawing really well. They had tremendous television ratings. Um, you know, again, the ability to create stars, um, you know, I mean, they had George Scott had a great run as Booker. Um, Oli So-So, probably not really that good. Dory, um, you know, Dory built the first arcade. So, um, and then Dory went to Florida and Dusty came up. And Dusty had um, a couple of killer years. 85 and 86 were huge. But um, 87 and 88 were, were not. So they were they were on the way down. And, um, you know, and that, that was after, you know, really... I think the purchase of the UWF, which was going to be when when they purchased the UWF. At the time, I thought, you know, you do the UWF versus uh, Jim Crockett Promotions feud, NWA versus UWF, Battle for Championships, Super Bowl of Wrestling, mix in the talent. They had so much good talent. And, you know, it would have been, in theory, a way to really have something unique. They were on TBS, jumpstart everything, and and um, they just, you know, it was the same thing Vince did when he when he got WCW. They they own it, and the first thing they wanted to do is prove that the people that they had were actually bigger stars than the people that they were bringing in. So the new stars, with the exception of Sting, everyone that they brought in from UWF, they didn't, you know. They didn't do anything with. They beat and um... Dave Meltzer talking on the Wrestling Observer radio show. Had to stop it there, or would be rolling this for another two hours because there's never a period on the end of Dave Meltzer's sentences. So we decided to stop it right there. But good information there from Dave Meltzer talking about the life and times of Jim Crockett. How about Jim Cornette, who worked for the National Wrestling Alliance and Jim Crockett Promotions? Jim Cornette. His thoughts on the late Jim Crockett Jr. Their fathers had both started in promotion in the in the 30s. And 
It came down to two second-generation promoters, two Southerners, but one that wanted to be a Northerner, one that was proud to be a Southerner. They, it was almost like, goddamn, you know it's a fucking trivia fact. In the Civil War, both of the presidents of the United States and the Confederate States were born in the state of Kentucky. And both of the promoters in the two-horse promotional race in the 80s were born in the state of North Carolina. But Vince had an unhappy childhood and could never get past that and had a grudge against the South since that time. And Jim Crockett Jr. came up at a well-to-do family uh, with the probably the relationship that Vince wishes he had with his wrestling promoter father and loved and was proud of being from the South and would never have gone anywhere else and just wanted to promote wrestling, like we said, in the Carolinas. And I think that's the that's another one of the ironic parts that, you know, maybe it was personal with Vince and, and Jimmy Jr. because he could, Vince could see some of himself and what he might have done or what he could have done or been or whatever in Jimmy. would I wonder, would Vince, if Vince had a better relationship with his father would he have wanted to conquer the world or would he have just been like Jim Crockett and happy to be a family business and and well respected in his area and successful enough for people that didn't want to own the world I don't know but it's uh anyway this is you know who's left uh Bill Watts of the great uh, Bill Watts, Jerry Jarrett, of the great territory promoters. Who else? I'm trying to think. Vern's gone. Fritz is gone. Graham's gone. Um, yeah. It's, it's, well, I mean, like, Antonio Inoki. Well, I mean, the territories in the United States. I'm just States. thinking but promoters from that, that period of that time. Era. Yeah, yeah, Baba's gone. Emil Dupree? Is he? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, yeah, I said this on, on Twitter. I said it last week on a program. I'll say it again. If Jim Crockett Promotions was still in business, I don't know that I would have ever left Charlotte. I loved working for that company, not only because the talent was great and the wrestling was outstanding and the, the territory, the people loved wrestling there. And I loved living in Charlotte, North Carolina. Since I've been back in recent years, it's gotten big. It looks like a big northern city now, but when I lived there, it was green and it was southern and it was the weather was mostly good and people were friendly and great places to eat. And but the the wrestling promotion there, you were a a local superstar. You were more over than you know than the local television news celebrities or there was as we mentioned no professional sports back then in the carolinas except for auto racing but you know even though the heels had heat and there were certain places you didn't want to be in public uh because of that heat they respected the wrestlers in that territory too they hated the heels and still respected them if that makes any sense but it wasn't like looked down on like a substandard form of entertainment or, you know, the, the wrestlers were stars and wrestling was big. And that was because of Crockett Promotions and the way they took care of their business all those years. 
Jim Cornette talking about uh, his days at Jim Crocker Promotion says he would still be there if it was open. It says a lot for Jim. You know, the Horsemen were a big part of Jim Crocker Promotions as well. Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson were two members of the Four Horsemen. They got a chance to come together. Of course, Tully and Arn both were now work for AEW. Arn Anderson as a manager, as an on-screen talent with Cody Rhodes, and also an agent, uh, a producer in the back for AEW. Tully Blanchard also is someone who works for AEW, and they're both in the same company together. Conrad Thompson got a chance to talk to Tully and Arn about leaving Jim Crocker Promotions. Now, the thing that we continue to hear uh, on this podcast is that there was a time where the money dried up for Jim Crocker Promotions. All the, the you heard the money, the the planes, everything else. They were ro- living like rock stars, but didn't have the money to cover it at a, a certain time. So Tully and Arn took their leave. Some thoughts from Tully and Arn on leaving Jim Crocker Promotions. Of course, we're, we're just getting started with the whole Midnight Express angle, but I know that the WWF has really done a number on Jim Crockett Promotions, counter-programming their pay-per-views and things like that. So Arn and I have talked a lot on the show about how there were just some financial things that were promised that weren't actually delivered, and you guys had had enough and said, okay, that's it. And uh, I think you went and met with uh, with Vince McMahon. What can you tell me about your, your frustration with Jim Crockett Promotions that ultimately said, okay, this is the straw that broke the camel's back. We should see if we can get another deal. Well, I mean, basically that was it. it you know, it, the thing that, that uh, you know, we were, we were being used and abused. Wrestling fans are still watching, but, I mean, we're having to give in every match, as Arn's already talked about. And they're they're negotiating for turner to buy the company and they're giving contracts out and guaranteed contracts and stuff like that and they and they left out arn and i and uh which was pretty much of a tactical error uh and so we had the opportunity to go uh and fly up privately and 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 meet with vince and uh you know we went to his house and and we didn't talk dollars i don't i don't think we did i don't remember it if we did um but that we would get a push or whatever and that we could do whatever and then uh we were being interviewed with us on a the, the Turner people and in my bluntness the guy was asking me questions and they told me to tell the truth so I did and uh, I made a few comments about some of the network some of the markets that we were losing ratings in and I said this is why we're losing ratings and uh Crockett called me on the phone and told me that that I wasn't loyal, and so they kicked me off the airplane. Was that Jim or David who made the call? Oh, Jim. Okay. Uh, and uh, we were in Houston, Texas, and um, they were passing out next week's 
who's on the plane and who's booking sheet. And I, I, <laughs> I looked at it and my name wasn't on the, on the plane list. And <laughs> I, I, I think I snapped. Arn would be a much better person to tell because uh, he was right there watching. And I just, I think I, I don't know if I had a temper tantrum or whatever. I just said, okay, I'm done. I quit. Uh, do you want the belts tonight or tomorrow night in Philadelphia? Hello again, friends. Arn Anderson with more. Uh, I called Darso. He called me back. They put two plane tickets for us and went to, to Philly. We got up the next morning and uh, flew up to Vince's. That was okay. the time And we met out by the pool. We did discuss money. Not He didn't promise us what we would make, but he asked what we make prior. And he said, oh, no problem. I can, I'll certainly do better than that. Was, was one of the things he said. We flew back to Philly, went in that night when it was time to get there and uh, turned in our notice. It was abuse to me. I think it shit on, it shit on me. Not that I could beat Steve Williams. That's, I couldn't beat Steve Williams with a flamethrower. That, that's not the question. We had it shed on the Midnight Express, and it shed on Tully and I that we had just went out and in a competitive match tore the joint down, and now you're just going to squash me, you know, just like I'm a, a guy that showed up that works at Piggly Wiggly during the week. Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard talking about their days at Jim Cracker Promotions. That's quite a story at the end. When they, when Tully wanted to drop the titles because he didn't get, he didn't get a chance to get on the private airplane of Jim Crockett, he's like, okay, enough of this. And they drop the championships, and Jim Crockett says, okay, after the twenty minutes match that you had with the Midnight Express, I need you to go out and take on Steve Doctor Death Williams. And as you just heard from Arn, Arn's like, like I'm not some jobber. I'm not. I'm gonna wrestle for twenty, thirty minutes. And now you want me to go out again? and get beat again he's like no i'm not doing that not in the same night now you're just trying to diminish my value and so i completely get it at the end it was not great but the one thing i'll always remember is not the end of jim crocker promotions but me as a kid watching jim crocker promotions and watching the nwa when it came to my television on syndicated tv it was just amazing television and so rest in peace jim crockett there's so much more. I could give you four or five different um, episodes of the life of Jim Crockett because there's so much to cover. But I just want to give you a, a taste of my childhood and to give respect to one of the all-time great promoters, Jim Crockett. But in closing, I'll tell you this. The problems with the territories over the years, one thing obviously is money and, the te- and regional television. But everyone was always trying to catch Vince McMahon, whether it's Dixie Carter and TNA, whether it is uh, Ring of Honor, whether it's MLW, all these companies, they all have their niche. But it's one thing that you got to say is that Vince McMahon, for better or for worse, has got the pencil. He's the booker, the booker when it comes to how he runs his television. It is not funneled through another wrestler. It's, there's no misinterpretation. You know who the boss is when it comes to the WWE brand. It's either Vince or Triple H, and there's really no in-between. Uh, in 
AEW right now, it's Tony Khan. Maybe Tony's doing it the right way, saying, hey, you know, I got a lot of agents. But here's the thing that we do know. We know that Kenny Omega's got a lot of influence. You know, the Young Bucks and Cody Rhodes have a lot of influence as well. But Tony says, no one, no one writes the TV except me. We'll see how that occurs. But all the territories were great. But they were limited because there's too many chefs in the kitchen. And, of course, funds. <laughs> so... Great, a great look at Jim Crockett Jr. Man, it's tough to see him go, but Jim Crockett Promotions was an all-time great territory for sure. Thanks for listening and supporting Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday right here, wherever you download your podcast. I'm Jonathan Hood, an NWA fan for life. <laughs> Jim Crockett Promotions fan for life. Thank you so much for listening and supporting TWT.